University of Texas Press presents Haiku History, the American Saga Three Lines at a Time by the historian H.W. Brands. Melding history and poetry, this one-of-a-kind haiku history recounts the story of America from the nation's birth to the election of the 45th president. Haiku History, available now at utexaspress.com or wherever good books are sold. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Over the past two weeks, it's been difficult to focus on anything except the reaction to George Floyd's murder. The protests against police brutality and for defunding or abolishing police departments have not only been massive, but have resulted in a few dramatic changes. A majority of the Minneapolis City Council has announced that it will vote to disband the city's police department. The New York State Senate voted to repeal 50-A, a law that has kept police disciplinary records private. And the D.C. Council approved a number of sweeping police reforms, as well as the reenfranchisement of felons incarcerated in the district's jail. As cities and states rethink policing, reassessment of other public services will soon follow. In the June issue, Ian Volner writes about the new affordable housing movement, which seeks to avoid and correct the mistakes of past public housing programs. Volner joined me to discuss his article and reforms that could turn back the clock on the condo boom. So a backbone to the essay is provided by the life and career of your grandfather, Kelsey Volner, who grew up in the Bronx and worked at first at the New York Housing Authority or NYCHA and later in private real estate development. Tell us about him and where your interest in his life began. And did his influence play a part in your own interest in architecture? As a matter of fact, my, my grandfather was a semi-mythical character for much of my upbringing. He died when I was as young as nine. That is to say, I remember him pretty distinctly, but even in life, he seemed more like a fictional figure. He was extraordinarily tall by the time he entered his later years, he was strangely skinny. My father always described him in his prime as looking like a barrel on top of two toothpicks. <laughs> he had this loud kind of jovial manner and was given to telling long, pointless stories like about how he met a man on a train whose name rhymed with his. My mother remembered first meeting him, this would have been in the late 70s, and saying that he looked like a con man. And the truth is, he, he kind of was. He, he wore loud check suits and newsboy caps and all this sort of thing. And he used this eccentricity and this kind of warm, jokey manner, manner to try to, I think, cajole and persuade people to invest in lower income housing, which was what he did for most of his life. The article is primarily focused on his years with the New York City Housing Authority and the immediate years following when he first entered the private sector. But for most of his life and for most of his career, he worked with private developers to try to finance middle-income apartment complexes all over the United States. Mm -hmm. The fact that he was as brash and kind of kooky as he was, and the fact that he also was driven by what at least would seem to be a kind of very strong social conscience. I guess that combination was always fascinating to me. And 
the more I came to know about the latter part, about what he'd done with his life, the more fascinating he became to me. And I guess I meant for years to write about him. The funny thing is, is that he actually got into a number of legal scrapes over the course of his life. The bit about him being a bit of a con man, again, is not entirely inaccurate. But the, the primary one, the one for which he nearly went to jail, the one that's uh, discussed in the article, that one, I, I didn't really understand what had happened or that it had happened at all until as recently as a couple of years ago. And that kind of clinched it. And that really made me want to write about him and his work. And obviously, coronavirus, other current events, um, there's been a lot of back and forth in Congress about aid packages and whether they should be needs-based. And so much of the stigma of public housing has to do with it being needs-based, a large part of it. I'm not going to say all. So can we talk about the potential drawbacks of needs-based programs? Yeah, the most successful social housing programs abroad have either little or no means testing. Their, their success rests primarily in the fact that they're available to everyone on a lottery or some other such system. That's what allows them to maintain sufficient political support and to do their job, which is to provide a reservoir of lower cost housing that deflates the housing market slightly overall. Mm -hmm. Usually the, the poster child for successful social housing in an urban context is Vienna, Austria, which has had a strong social housing component dating back to before the Second World War. Um, maybe familiar with the Karl Marx Hof. It's like a very idealistic, originally very lefty, communist-inhabited type housing complex, which is at once pretty startling architecturally. The model is not that dissimilar from some early housing projects in the United States, but it's a sort of courtyard arrangement, but really, really great and still very, very desirable, terrific condition. Means testing has, especially in the American context, the advantage of having some political support. Americans have that feeling about social services that they shouldn't be given to people above a certain income bracket. You, you, you can get away with some degree of means testing and still have enough political support and enough financial support, even more importantly, to keep government subsidized housing afloat. It's just that the bar has to be raised somewhat. There are other reasons for that as well. Public housing, as it was first conceived in the United States, I'm thinking of the New, the New, New York public housing in particular, priced you out of housing once your income rose above a certain level. The consequence was that most of the housing project that we think of as having failed actually began to get a lot better after those income cutoffs were essentially phased out or at least substantially modified beginning primarily in the Koch administration here in New York. After that, you, you were then incentivized to go out and continue, you know, seek some kind of social mobility. Your income could rise and you wouldn't face expulsion from housing or a substantial increase in your rent that all but obliterated any actual income increase you'd enjoyed by getting a a better job. Uh, So yeah, means testing is deeply problematic. At the very best, it should be limited in application and uh, shouldn't cut off people in uh, the middle income brackets. Right. And speaking of what actually did get passed, the March coronavirus stimulus package, the CARES Act, made it unlawful to evict renters living in properties financed by federally backed mortgages, which is only about a fourth of uh, rental properties in the U.S. And some cities and states have issued their own moratoriums on evictions, but some of those are already ending. 
Uh, Meanwhile, the bill did very little to address the continuing hardship of rent payments or to invest in affordable housing. What do you think we would need to see in the next stimulus package, assuming there is one, to address those priorities? And what specific mechanisms would make the most sense? Yeah, it's problematic. The stimulus packages thus far have primarily been seen as stopgap measures to keep the economy afloat during a temporary health crisis. Mm. It's been hard from multiple perspectives, even for congressional leaders otherwise inclined to try to finance housing measures to get that into those bills, not the least because with social distancing, while you can do some construction and certainly at least begin to plan some some of the design phases of potential future housing, a lot of the logistics are complicated by the mere fact that you can't have a lot of people in the same space at the same time. Housing is an industry like any other. Construction has slowed down considerably, although it's slowed down less than other sectors, and we're already seeing it come back to life. This means that, yes, now that we have hopefully begun to see the leveling out of the health crisis and the economy begin to reopen, there is the potential for the federal government to engage in stimulative efforts that include an infrastructure component and that that infrastructure component could include housing. Mm -hmm. What it takes to get the federal government off its stuff to actually finance it? Well, we don't know. The the main vehicle available now to the the federal government that it, it could deploy would be the National Housing Trust Fund. The program initiated under the Bush, last Bush administration, mm-hmm. for which the Obama administration had had great expectations, but which was ultimately nipped in the bud through the uh, intransigence of congressional Republicans. It, it, it's an all-purpose fund for the subsidization of housing that would be free, if properly done, from congressional interference because it would draw most of its financing from the interests off of Fannie and Freddie mortgages, which has a pleasant kind of poetic justice to it, since it was those mortgages, that, those institutions, that financed the enormous government-subsidized boom in suburban development uh, since the end of the Second World War. You, you can't do half measures with that housing trust fund. Either they have to license the financing mechanism as intended, or they, they might as well wait until there's a Democratic administration inclined to do it. There's no point in them, there's or very little point, let's say, in merely throwing a few hundred million dollars into it as a one-time stimulative effort. The good news, I suppose, is that former Vice President Biden, following the, the lead of Senator Warren, Senator Sanders, and assorted other progressives, including former would-be presidential uh, candidates, has decided that the NHTF is a priority for him and says that he would indeed make it a really uh, active force for housing construction were he elected president. But I don't know that we're likely to see anything big move before the election. Right. I mean, we've we've got a lot of other stuff going on. We have. The, the bandwidth is pretty limited for housing right at the moment. Although, yeah, with the like in New York alone, where, where we have obviously one such eviction moratorium, that moratorium is supposed to terminate when? June 20th? Yeah. It's pretty soon. Yeah. Unless they do an extension, which I half expect they might. But if they do not, hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers are going to be facing eviction overnight. The eviction process is long and slow in this city. It's not as though they'd be turned out into the street right away. But you're going to have an imminent crisis coming down the pipe really fast. Right. And actually, could we talk about the eviction process and sort of the... Um the movements in New York that have popped up following the spread of coronavirus and all these people losing their jobs to kind of fight against that, that mechanism. 
Uh, certainly. I, I actually, while I've seen plenty of the online chatter from these groups and have noted them as a component, even in recent demonstrations over the last week that have mostly been about police violence, there's been housing justice groups out there. Whether they can manage a coherent set of policy platforms that could translate into action at the city or state level, I don't know. A lot of them have a lot of different kinds of demands, uh, additional rent controls, a, a longer or perhaps permanent extension of the eviction moratorium. I'm always surprised, frankly, if uh, it, it, were, were I to have my druthers, the, the primary, besides expanding the housing stock, simply increasing supply, mm-hmm. including a, a permanent guaranteed supply of below market housing. Besides that, the, the, the number one initiative that I would embrace that few of these housing groups that I'm familiar with have discussed, and again, I might have missed it somewhere in the jumble. One of the, the most effective avenues for housing, one that rhymes very nicely with progressive politics in general, is cooperatively owned housing. Not just increasing the number of cooperative units being constructed, which happens here, here and there, but certainly cooperative housing has been one component in the de Blasio administration's attempt to expand the uh, subsidized housing stock. But existing rental properties, many of them could be ripe for co-op conversion where the city and or state to extend additional incentives, both for landlords to sell their properties to their buildings and to help the tenants finance the acquisitions. We've, we, at various times in New York City history, we've seen waves of co-op construction or co-op conversion. The last major wave of conversions in New York City ended kind of like it went from about the late 80s to the early 90s. And the consequence was that you had an enormous reservoir then built up of housing that was protected from the market to a degree in which uh, tenants have equity, which is, you know, not to, to be discounted entirely, but in which the equity does not become so compelling that they view the housing as a commodity. Mm. Co-op housing is for longer term owners. And it has a democratic component, which I can't help but feel is appealing on its own merits which is that the people who live in the building really are in charge of what happens with the building. And right now, especially with the recent changes in the rental laws, we we have indeed seen some actual action in response to the demands of housing groups in just the last year, recently as last summer, the a new set of uh, rental uh, regulations as well as laws regarding the conversion of rentals to condos went into effect. With those changes, it now becomes marginally harder for landlords to convert buildings into condos, which is a greater economic benefit to them, if not necessarily to all the tenants. And it may over time become marginally less profitable to be in the rental business. That leaves only one major option left that may be more and more appetizing to landlords. And that has definite advantage for renters as well. And that's co-op conversion. So part of your argument is aesthetic, and you have a great deal of interest in architecture. And you were talking about the one of the features of a common feature of public housing is the courtyard. And how the buildings look is almost as important as what they are built for because of the again, this the stigma. So can you talk about the shift in how public housing is the actual architectural features of it and how past failures, past design failures that created a really bad situation. Yeah, I, I, you know, the, the, these are very deep waters. It, it, 
and I, I often feel two ways about it myself. You, you need look no further than projects like uh, Stuyvesant Town to see an instance of what ostensibly is indistinguishable architecturally from the housing projects like uh, Cedric Houses in the Bronx or uh, other projects that uh, we regard as being the stigmatized kind of uh, stereotypical failed New York City or American housing uh, development, a high rise, a tower in a park. You look at Stuyvesant Town and you see, albeit one that was was subsidized, but it was middle class housing. It wasn't public housing as such. It's been an enormous success since its inception and it continues to be one today. Aesthetics alone are not determinate. There's so many other factors that come into play. But yes, it certainly makes it harder from a political perspective to maintain support, local support, to avoid nimbiest reaction to a building. It's hard to do that if the building is, is so plainly and obviously a subsidized housing complex that neighbors might complain. There are like a few basic typological currents that run through contemporary affordable housing, but so many of them overlap with what's happening on the private side with market rate housing that you'd be hard pressed to tell a market rate building from a subsidized building nowadays. The change was, yes, a change in architectural tastes for starters, but also the product of necessity in an environment where funding for housing is constrained you're not going to knock down a nine square block area and put up 30 story towers. You're going to attempt to wedge the buildings in wherever there is an available space to put them. Mm-hmm. In the Bronx, where I live, you can look just a little ways east from my building over the central southern portion of the borough, which uh, saw such extensive fire damage in the 1970s and 80s. And almost every building you look at is brand new, as built within the last 10 or 15 years at most, or indeed some, many of them within just the last five. And they uh, sit on lots where they've sort of wedged into it. You know, nine properties might have burned, a third one derelict. The city, through various of its warehousing programs dating back to the Koch years, managed to assemble the parcel, got a private developer specializing in affordable in on the project. And they put in these rather cookie-cutter-ish brick towers but with sufficient kind of architectural detail that they look like the banal but acceptable background buildings that you might see uh, in almost any borough, in almost any part of New York where new building is going on, regardless of uh, who happens to be living in the buildings. As interested as I am in aesthetics, as much as I should like to see affordable housing be as good as it can be, the jury's still very much out about how much that is the limiting agent in in figuring out whether a building is likely to succeed or not. The urban context is all, social context is all. Some banal buildings are doubtless very, very nice places to live and people are very happy there. So (laughs) I don't uh, like to be too much of a snob about it in these cases, although I always uh, believe that excellence is possible. And uh, this administration, which has done everything to gut the quality of federal, (laughs) federal buildings, is not likely to be one that's going to deliver in housing any more than it is in any other field. Right. Actually, let's talk a little bit about Ben Carson because he is, because Trump is such a um, attention magnet, let's say, that it's hard to get a real sense of what people in his administration, particularly in, you know, like Betsy DeVos, uh, Ben Carson, to really get a sense of what they are doing with the positions that they have. So, I guess, what are some 
big differences? Are there any big differences between how Carson, who uh, has no previous experience with housing, how has he approached public housing? The, The word from everyone in housing circles that I spoke to, and I interviewed officials in housing authorities, people in, uh, public-private organizations, folks on the uh, nonprofit side, people in elected positions, many of whom had dealings with Carson, even if it was just as little as the secretary showing up for a ribbon cutting. Almost to a man, they were relatively complimentary. Now, this is to some extent strategic. Regardless of what they might think of HUD under its present directorship, the dangers of alienating the department are great enough that even if they had objections, they might be wise to keep them to themselves. But they were also prepared to speak off the record and on. And from all of those conversations, the net net result was, well, Carson isn't really so bad by himself. He he might not really know much about it, come to the table with much. But, you know, uh, his heart to some degree is in the right place and his head would be if only he could remove from it the stumbling block of his own ideology. Right. The ideology is summed up in the one of the quotes I have from him in the piece, that he doesn't simply simply thinks that the federal government should not throw more money at the problem. If you're not throwing more money at the problem at this stage, uh, then you're not in any position to solve it. The managerial switches that he's made, which is the primary influence that Carson has had over the department since he assumed the position, these managerial changes are small potatoes. Some of them were maybe worthwhile reforms, installing a CFO uh, in the department, for example, um, but they're not going to have much effect on the housing market, per se, and it's hard to say how he thought they might. A, a big theme of your piece is this idea of not repeating the past failures of public housing advocates and builders, you know, people like your of your grandfather's generation. Can we talk about those mistakes and how they have led to this present moment where in New York City it is very, very, very hard to find affordable housing, either through um, a public program or just renting. So you're just curious what, what were like the sort of signal mistakes that one could that one if one were to make a like a hit list of things of do not do's, what would be on it? Yes, yes. Yeah, we've already discussed the architectural element. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason to return whatever its merits or demerits or whatever influence you decide in the end that design choices have over the the quality of a given affordable housing development. There's no real reason to return to the Corbusian model of the tower in the park. Uh, It involved too much disruption. It's not really suitable to most environments. It it can succeed. It's not just Stuyvesant Town. There's plenty of good developments which remain government subsidized abroad. I I think especially like West Berlin, just full of them. But uh, aside from from a more sophisticated and more sensitive and more contextually appropriate uh, architectural approach, I guess that the other things on the do not do list would include, yeah, do not uh, ensure that the tenantry is so, so exclusively confined to the lowest income bracket that the project simply have no support outside of those who actually live in them. This goes back to our conversation about means testing there's an important corollary to that, and it's sensitive and very hard to navigate, which is the question of what kind of ethno-cultural makeup do you have in subsidized developments? As I discussed in the piece, my grandfather was extremely eager not to have the housing that he was in charge of constructing be viewed as minority housing. 
He believed that it was damaging to the long-term political prospects of those projects. And he believed that ultimately it was it was an unhealthy kind of sociological approach that having a diverse tenantry was better for, for everyone. To, 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 in order to try to prevent the utter absence of, of white tenants, my, my grandfather actually, and this was a, a dubious at best on his part, turned away some black applicants in favor of white ones or sought out white tenants when none had applied in a desperate attempt to try to keep some sense of, uh, of racial diversity. Whatever one thinks of that profoundly flawed approach, the fact is, is that not having ethnic monocultures in subsidized housing is probably a great idea if it can be achieved uh, without relying on out-and-out quotas. I suppose quotas could be applicable in some instances. Really, if the housing is appealing enough, if the income distribution is wide enough, the means testing limited enough, then you have a very good prospect of naturally attracting black, white, Latino immigrant and native born, you have the possibility of creating subsidized housing, below market housing that really puts, bends the curve on the overall housing price in a given market without becoming confined just to one or the other race or, or, um, or uh, social, social background. So that would be number four. And if we, we decided we, did, we needed to do a top five do not do's. Um, <laughs> Go for it. Well, I know fifth one. Where else did my grandfather screw up? Um, <laughs> the, the, the fifth one, to some degree, I guess, is what the National Housing Trust Fund is deliberately constructed to do, which is that the financing should not be too susceptible to uh, politics. This, this is not to say that it should not be susceptible to revision at the will of the voters. Um, there was enough wrong with first-generation public housing that there was every reason to attempt to modify it, even to limit it to some degree. The Nixon moratorium, as with so much that Nixon did, was cynical in that as a moratorium, it was probably a great idea to take a pause, to take stock of what public housing was uh, by the early 70s and what was wrong with it, and then to start anew. But of course, Nixon being Nixon, the moratorium was always a cover, a, a nominal patch to make it appear that to be a thoughtful approach to the housing problem when it was obviously a termination, and, and that's precisely what it became. Have, having something like the National Housing Trust Fund or other financing mechanisms that can't be so easily shut down at the whim of one administration or one Congress would probably be a means of ensuring not just that the housing continued to be built, but more importantly, that housing after it's constructed, regardless of whether you wanted to institute another Nixon-like moratorium in future, at the very least, it would ensure that any housing that was constructed was adequately financed after its construction because it's in the maintenance of the physical plant, the maintenance of the programming, all the rest of the things that go into keeping a building operating. That's where public housing in the United States really went into free fall following the Nixon administration. Uh, and that would be a major flaw to the model that my, my grandfather pursued during his uh, years with NYCHA. Is that fall... I mean, obviously, there are a lot of complicated things with that fall post-Nixon. And there's definitely the rise of the figure of the welfare queen. There's the war on drugs. There are lots of cultural things pushed by the Republican Party, the, the war on crime, for another example, that, that really ratcheted up this anxiety and stigma about public housing. So 
what do you feel needs to happen in this country so that we can get to a place where we say, okay, housing is a right? Yeah, I mean, I think you can make the, 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 the assertion itself, I don't think is all that unpopular for all the problems, for all the seeming perils that have been attached to it in the public mind, you know, creeping socialism and whatever. I, I don't think that making that a political motto is necessarily all that dangerous anymore. If you want to change hearts and minds about how housing can be done and done right, I mean, it certainly helps to be a raging socialist if you want to try to persuade somebody of the merits of subsidized housing, but you don't got to be. My, my grandfather came from a very lefty background. His father was, well, as with you know a large number of Jewish immigrants uh, from Eastern Europe at the time, they, they were all various extractions of socialist or radical or something or other. Mm-hmm. If anything, my grandfather, as with a lot of members of, of his generation, shifted slowly to the right over the years. It wasn't just coincident with his leaving NYCHA and going to the private sector. It was a general drift. While he was still in the department, and this quote appears in the piece, he makes a case where uh, for, for private industry having a role in housing as being good enough in some situations and good enough for a good portion of the market, but it just doesn't do enough unless you have a, a fallback, a safety net the same way you do for the, retire, for the for retirees in this country in the form of Social Security, for health, as we have with Medicare, Medicaid, to some extent with Obamacare, and assorted other systems for children and veterans and so on and so forth. As you have with all of those areas in our economic life, you can have and must have uh, a form of safety net for housing. This may make it sound this may sound like a kind of squishes argument, but I don't know how else you put it to the, the, the those who, as with the secret, current Secretary of Housing, whose ideological opposition is so hopelessly intransigent that you can't seem to uproot them or uh, who may have uh, deeper and perhaps even darker uh, prejudices against the idea of subsidized housing, many of them, I think, outdated. I'd certainly like to think you could move even some of those by simply presenting them as the piece attempts to do, presenting contemporary housing, showing the kind of people who are living in it, doctors, teachers, police officers even, and saying, look, uh, subsidized housing is is for everyone. But... uh, uh, changing those minds uh, of all those who have been so uh, so sold on the idea of social housing as an uh, intrinsic evil uh, could be a years-long uh, process. The fact that we are now potentially uh, in the hands of an instrument in the form of the National Housing Trust Fund that doesn't draw entirely or even or doesn't even draw at all practically on taxpayer funds, that it draws off of the income on those Fannie and Freddie mortgages begins at least to demonstrate to voters that it might be an effective tool in arguing to the electorate that this isn't going to come directly out of their pocketbooks. At least it needn't come out of their pocketbooks uh, the way that they're accustomed to thinking of it, out of, directly out of their, their taxes. But uh, that, that argument might not really happen during this electoral cycle. And as much as we, yes, possibly do face imminent crises in multiple cities with potential evictions resulting from the economic fallout of COVID as much as the other crisis we're now presently uh, going through, which is very much connected with the conditions in cities, as much as these dovetail with housing to some degree or the other, 
there's so much else afoot that, again, there's a bandwidth problem. You, hopefully you can start to make the argument after you can achieve some change at the top. That's maybe a little bit too cockeyed optimistic, but, uh, well, that's just me. I guess I'm a hopeless romantic. Speaking of what's been happening in cities, and again, this is this is all stuff that is, you know, intersected with all these larger trends in American society, sort of the stagnation of middle class wages and the drift, well, not the drift, the vacuuming of uh, wealth up to the very top 1% of the population. Many cities are now undergoing, quote unquote, urban revitalization or more plainly gentrification. And a large part of that is, you know, tearing down old buildings, putting up condos, many, many units of which aren't actually lived in for for years at a time. Um, so can you talk about the conditions that basically the condo the condo phenomena where what <laughs> sorts of incentives are those builders getting that could potentially go to public housing that could go to more affordable living situations. Yeah, I mean, to, to set the stage ideologically, the, the condo boom and the kind of very high cost luxury developments that we've seen sprout up in quote unquote revitalized urban centers over the last uh, two decades now, these are a perfect instance of how well capitalism can work in theory, but not in practice. It, it would seem almost intuitively true, which is the argument that, uh, you, you know, sort of reformists quasi-conservative housing specialists and uh, city theorists uh, made and continue to make for years that, uh, well, if you just increase housing stock, it doesn't really particularly matter what kind of housing you build. Eventually, the stock will increase to a point where prices will begin to go down overall and or the individual developments that you're putting up, even though they're high cost condos now, will eventually lower in price through a process of filtration, a kind of... uh, corollary to to trickle-down economics in general. Mm. There's even reason to, at least was reason, to believe that this could happen because most of the housing in New York City that's now lower-income housing was at one point middle or even uh, high-income housing. That was how American cities worked for, uh, to the better part of 200 years and more. Districts fell out of fashion, the rich moved north, and the, those formerly swell houses uh, around the, the grand public squares of the early 19th century became the squalid, tenement-filled ghettos of the later 19th century. Mm-hmm. This stopped happening. The, the, the argument you make when you point to the condos going up downtown in, in, in downtowns all over America now is that there's just no filtering happening at all. It's not happening at anything like the pace that it did uh, 100 years ago or 150 years ago. It's not likely to happen at any point in the future, absent some kind of social change that makes the prices go down. There are a host of economic factors that have produced this situation. Mm-hmm. But yes, the the time to stop building high cost condominium developments in hopes that they will eventually become affordable housing is now. And the subsidization mechanisms, which are myriad and vary from city to city and include assorted federal tax subsidies, these can all be probably usefully redirected into either housing or other worthwhile urban investments and infrastructure and transit that could indeed bring housing costs down. They're they're, they're mostly lost through the tax code, right? Even nominally affordable developments, you you could safely switch some of those light tech uh, tax credits with the low-income housing tax credit, which is the primary 
vehicle nowadays for most affordable construction, or you, you could probably you could probably uh, safely end some of those simply because although much good has been done and is being done with LIHTC, its inefficiencies are su- such that if you had another another mechanism for building affordable housing, you wouldn't need to rely on it so heavily. And the LIHTC affordable housing is sometimes of dubious affordability and often also includes market rate units that can be very, very pricey. This is a similar flaw with the uh, inclusionary zoning ordinances that many cities have, uh, the 3070, there are all kinds of different formulae. They can vary from project to project, but they tend to mix affordable housing with market rate housing to a degree that advantages the developers, but that comes at the cost of really creating a sufficient quantity of truly affordable housing. And any one of these uh, various programs you could draw away from somewhat to my mind, I mean, I, I guess I'm a kind of like left-leaning supply cider. Uh, so, so long as you have an, an additional source of financing, you, you may not might not have to threaten all those condo developers with pulling all their special little plugs they've uh, <laughs> accumulated over the years. The fact of the matter is that uh, as, as Douglas Guthrie, who's the head of the Housing Authority of Los Angeles, City of Los Angeles, who I spoke to, and a longtime housing veteran, one of the people who actually helped create LIHTC, and who now thinks it's become oh, it's become kind of the uh, a monster, as he points out, this is the only game in town attempting to reform all of the yes infinite waste of our current mixed bag housing system is a valuable endeavor that should be undertaken. But the first priority has to be simply finding a new means of financing low cost, true low cost housing construction on mass in the nearer term, at least. Yeah, and especially in a place like Los Angeles, where it's just an enormous homeless population that yeah. for for no for no good reason. And I mean, that's true here, too. It's true. A lot of places. Homelessness. You, you were asking earlier about how do you get people to move on this issue? Homelessness is something that actually tends to get people uh, pretty motivated, not the least middle and upper middle income and upper income homeowners who don't really like uh, homeless encampments a few blocks away or, you know, like right around the corner in the underpass near their uh, lovely home in, you know, like Las Palmas. <laughs> and, and Los Angeles and San Francisco and assorted other cities that have seen a substantial increase in homelessness over the last decade have indeed taken measures, some of them pretty extensive and ongoing, to try to provide just beds. It's just, it's, it's, it's like the Vietnam War. They're mm-hmm. just a numbers game. It's like, we want body count, bodies in beds. Bodies in beds is great. Homelessness is a pressing issue. Homeless housing has to be built to treat this problem. But the problem itself is really only a symptom. The disease itself is way upstream. Right. I, of course, do not have the data because I'm a moron, but there's a remarkably reliable, eerily reliable statistical formula for how much of an increase in average housing uh, cost or housing burdened, the, the percent of the population paying X percent uh, for their housing, how much of a percent increase in that cost correlates with the percent increase in homeless. It's not one-to-one. It's pretty complicated. And it's, on a, it's sort of it, it's on a variety of curve, but it is nearly as sure as gravity. The more housing prices go up, the more homeless you get. It's that simple. If you can find a way of bending that housing curve, and we've certainly got used to the talk about, talk about bending curves recently, the more you can bend that price curve, the less homeless you will have over the long term. It's sort of 
percolates slowly downwards and becomes homelessness. So you've got to go upstream in order to treat that problem. Right. Well, hopefully we will do that sometime soon. We've got a lot of stuff to deal with. Oh, you're a optimist too. I love it. <laughs> well, you gotta be. Otherwise, uh, I don't know. Oh, no, I, I generally <laughs> despair. I'm all about despair. Like I, I embrace it. Uh, when I, the funny <laughs> thing about talking about the housing issue for me is that this is a very policy oriented issue combined with this curious family fact, this personal connection that I have to it. Mm -hmm. This is not generally the kind of story that I take on. Like I'm more at home making bitingly cynical criticisms of contemporary architecture. <laughs> but so it's, it, it's hard for me to maintain my critical poker face when talking about this precisely because it's, uh, it seems so oppressingly relevant and because it strikes so very close to home given my family history. But it was really great to do it just this time for precisely that reason, really. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and also it's just a, a moral issue where it's just not. Yeah, I suppose so. I, I always try to try to bring the, the, the moral and the political the discussions of, uh, of architecture. But, the, the, you know, inevitably you, you end up in more of a, of a kind of a niche argument with people. Uh, architecture is a four-letter four letter word to even otherwise uh, intellectually inclined readers. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's been known to make editors-in-chief of major mainstream publications fall asleep instantly just just at the mention of, uh, of design at all. But uh, yeah, so it was good to, to write about something that I hope finds a broader audience. Well, thank you so much. This was excellent. Thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 